This is Lego Football. Palliamo Calcio, this week we focus on the Serie B goalkeeper of the season, Sicilian football's plight. Serie A releases the fixture list, Insigne and Chiellini. Bofa, l'Americano, we're going to talk a little bit of MLS. All this on Lego Football. The smoke has cleared on a fiery Serie B campaign which culminated with Monza clinching the final promotion spot, joining Lecce and Cremonese in Serie A while Bari, Modena, FC Sutirol and Palermo were all elevated from the third division. It's time to comb through the league and create our very own Hottest 12 calendar. Yes, we realise that there are only 11 players in a team, but you're forgetting the coach who we'll name as Mr. December and perhaps dress him as Babbo Natale. But before we start, we'll go through the Lega B top 11 as chosen by fans on Twitter. Up front is Massimo Coda, the centravanti, the main striker, 20 goals this term. On the left flank is Alessio Zerbin of Frosinone. Decent season, first ever season in Serie B, in fact, with nine goals. Gianluca Gaetano from Cremonese behind the striker in that number 10 role. Gabriel Strefezza on the right side of attack. The two pivots, Nicolò Fagioli of Cremonese and Morten Hewland of Lecce. And at the back, we have Pietro Beruato and Samuele Birindelli, the left and right backs, both from Pisa in the middle. He's Caleb Ocoli, who played last season with Cremonese and Federico Gatti of Frosinone, owned by Juventus. And we should probably see him with the Bianconeri this season in Serie A. In goal was Marco Carnesecchi. He played the season with Cremonese. So plenty of representation from Lecce and Cremonese. Both of those sides went up into Serie A. Surprisingly, there's no representation from Monza, the third side to gain promotion. But are the fans right? Well, usually they are. However, Lega Football wants to know who is the best of the best of the 2021-22 Serie B season. And we've just released an article on our Substack, which we'll link into this pod. And this article is dedicated to choosing the best portiere in the Italian second division. We're going to start with goalkeepers. So the criteria, well, each player must have played the whole season in Serie B and at least 25 games, which is roughly two thirds of the 38 regular season games. So that narrows us down to 16 possible contenders to guard the goal. However, we will rule out a few names And the following will be ruled out based on personal and or club performances. Samuele Perizan of Pordenone, Matteo Pissri at Alessandria, Marco Festa, who played with Crotone, Matteo Grandi of Vicenza, Nicola Leali of Ascoli, and Anthony Iannarilli of Ternana. Those six goalkeepers simply conceded too many goals or their clubs had a, a shocker at the back this season. And like anyone else, Lega Football loves a bit of real-world data to guide us to a conclusion. This statistical analysis is only possible thanks to the fbref.com website. They also use StatsBomb. So let's deduce our way to glory. From the remaining 10 contenders, the first thing we will do is eliminate the goalkeeper that conceded the most goals against per 90 minutes. And that was Federico Ravaglia of Frosinone. He conceded 30 goals over 27 games for an average of 1.11 per game conceded. So the GA90, the acronym for goals against per 90 minutes. So with nine goalkeepers left, Gabriel of Lecce 
Well, he only conceded 24 goals in this campaign. His shot-stopping percentage is the lowest of the bunch at 67.2% and therefore must be culled. Gabriel was the lowest of the remaining nine goalkeepers in that regard. And apologies to Gigi Buffon fans. And yes, I am one of them. The World Cup winner only featured in 25 games throughout 2021-22, whereas the other contenders were tested in at least 32 Serie B fixtures. There will be some fans out there scowling at that decision. We all have Gigi close to our hearts, but the level of difficulty to perform at higher levels increases with every match. Gigi got through 26 games for Parma. He was out with injury for a while and Martin Turk came in to guard that goal. So with seven goalkeepers remaining, there's clearly a big difference between the best four performing shot stoppers and the rest. There's various reasons why goalkeepers have certain statistics. There are better defenses in front of the goalkeeper. And in some cases, the goalkeeper just has a blinder of a season and helps his team. And I think when we get to our conclusion, you will see that the goalkeeper that Lega Football has chosen has done just that by dragging his team. Well done to Elhan Castrati and Jesse Joranen for their tremendous campaigns. However, the pair only received 115 shots on target against the SOTA statistic and they must be omitted. And in that range, we're dealing with numbers that go all the way up to 154 saves with Anthony Yanarilli of Ternana being that goalkeeper. He led the way in shots on target against for this season, but conceding way too many goals, the Ternana goalkeeper. So he's not included in this list. Some people think that he was one of the top goalkeepers and there are certain sites and journalists out there that believe Yanarilli should feature in this list. But unfortunately, his save percentage just wasn't good enough. And some of these other sides conceded. We're talking anywhere from 30 goals up to 40 goals, whereas Tadnana conceded in the mid-50s. So the fans that voted for the Serie B goalkeeper of the season mainly voted for on Twitter. Well, they wanted Marco Carnesecchi of Cremonese as the goalkeeper. It's understandable why, considering the amazing season that the Italy under-21 international played. He guided Cremonese up into Serie A, but the data speaks for itself. Of the top five goalkeepers, Carnesecchi conceded the most goals, 38 in total, and achieved the lowest percentage of clean sheets, 25%, and the number of saves made, 72%. Contrary to what the fans pick, Carnesecchi ranks as the fifth best goalkeeper in Serie B at best, depending on what variables you want to use and what statistics. Karnaseki could even go down to sixth or seventh. But a fantastic season regardless. The top four goalkeepers, it's down to Di Gregorio, Pagliari, Cicizola and Nicolas. That's the Monza, Benevento, Perugia and Pisa keepers, all featured in at least 35 games during the regular season and all took part in the Serie B playoffs. Statistically speaking, this is the best of the best. Now let's dissect their differences We'll start with Michele Di Gregorio of Monza. His experience at 24 years of age, Di Gregorio has played in Serie B 105 times and Serie C 67 times since 2017. He's born in Milan. He's owned by Inter. 
and he was on loan at Monza. So Di Gregorio assisted Monza to its playoff victory over Pisa and subsequent debut Serie A promotion. So that's a bonus point, and I want to stress that. In addition, Di Gregorio has 19 wins to his name, more than any other, and we can add clean sheets, 15 of those, and clean sheet percentage, 40.5%, to this extraordinary list. There are some issues, though. Of the top four goalkeepers, Di Gregorio conceded the most goals at 37, and with that comes the worst goals against per 90 minutes title. Di Gregorio also conceded six goals over the four playoff games at a rate of 1.5 per game. Now, we're not using the playoffs to particularly define who is the best keeper, but perhaps that's a negative. And of the top four goalkeepers, his GA90 is at one exactly. So this is an extra half a goal per game conceded in the playoffs. Moving on to Nicolas Andrade of Pisa, very experienced goalkeeper at 34 years of age. Nicolas has played in Serie B 181 times and Serie A on 39 occasions since 2012 and has finished as a Serie B runner-up on two occasions. He he was marginally edged out for best clean sheet percentage, 40%, by Di Gregorio, who just edged in by half a percent. The Brazilian restores parity, though, by nudging in front of the Monza goalie with his better save percentage, 78.6%, and GA90 of 0.92. Nicolas shares the record for lowest goals conceded in the league, so that's a huge tick here, a green tick. Pisa conceded only 35 times in 2021-22, and the Nerazzurri's phenomenal back four, they did much of the work in this situation, and this is indicated by Nicolas's SOTA, the shots on target against, and the saves made, 101 saves in total. So 101 saves throughout the season sounds high, but we're dealing with Andrade having the lowest of the top four. Di Gregorio made 103, Pagliari, who is the Benevento goalkeeper, made 120. Cicizola made 124. Issues for Nicolas to his detriment. He also conceded six goals in the playoffs in just four games. He was victorious less often than Di Gregorio, made fewer saves and therefore received fewer shots on target. That's understandable considering he'd played two less regular season matches. So with the two playoff finalists at level pegging, it's Di Gregorio for me over Nicolas, thanks to the bonus point of Serie A promotion for the Monza goalkeeper. Moving on to Alberto Pagliari of Benevento. At 29 years of age, Pagliari has played in Serie B 131 times and Serie A on three occasions since 2016. He's owned by Genoa following a 2 million euro transfer from Cittadella in 2021. So while Benevento Benevento's attack was the best in the league. Their defensive performances were erratic. They finished seventh during the regular season. Pagliari endured the most shots on target, 149 of those, and made an incredible 120 saves at 80.5% in second place of this top four in just 35 matches, though. So that's 23 more shots on target against than Nicolas over the same amount of games. In his three playoff appearances, Pagliari only conceded once for a remarkable GA90 of 0.33 per game. There are some issues, not too many, though. Pagliari could only manage 12 clean sheets at a clean sheet percentage of 33.3. 
That's the lowest of the top four goalkeepers and it didn't block any of the five penalties awarded to adversaries throughout the season. But three big green ticks. He's above Di Gregorio in terms of saves and also Nicolas. And that comes with the territory of having more shots come in at 149 against Di Gregorio's 134 and 126. And now we'll move on to the Perugia goalkeeper, Leandro Cicizzola. At 32 years of age, Cicizzola has played in Serie B 170 times. He's played in La Liga and Argentina's Primera Division since 2010. Having played in the UEFA Europa League of 2019-20, Cicizzola arrived at Perugia for free from FC Cartagena of the Spanish Segunda Division in 2021. The Argentine was the only Serie B goalkeeper to have played every minute of the regular season with a league high 124 saves made accompanied by a league high save percentage of 82.3%. And of the top four keepers, Chichizola saved more penalties at 33% and led the way with a GA90 of 0.84 while sharing the best record of goals conceded at 32 goals alongside Nicolas, however, having played three more matches than Nicolas overall. So that's outstanding. There, there is one issue though. Chichizola has the third best clean sheet percentage of the top four goalkeepers. That's at 36.8. That's below Nicolas at 40 and Di Gregorio at 40.5. However, there are three big green ticks where Chichizola leads and then he's come second on four occasions. The bonus point also was that Perugia was freshly promoted from Serie C and Chichizola led the club to an eighth place finish to qualify for the playoffs while conceding just 32 goals. That's five less than Di Gregorio, two less than Pagliari with Monza and Benevento goalkeepers having played fewer games. Adding to that, Perugia scraped into the playoffs in eighth spot on 58 points with a head-to-head advantage over Frosinone. That's largely thanks to Cicizzola's cool head during their two regular season fixtures. The first ended nil all away at the Benito Stirpe just weeks after promotion from the third division. Perugia then won the return match 3-0 at the Renato Curi with a three-man backline of Angela Del Orco and Sgarbi. Who? Well, exactly. He had a no-frills backline in front of him. And this is also a massive reminder to those debating why a coach like Massimiliano Alvini was brought in by Cremonese. He was their Perugia coach. The miracle of Serie B, well, one of them, was the fact that Perugia made the top eight, especially in front of a side like Frosinone or Parma. Cicizzola enjoyed a brilliant campaign in Italy. And like I said earlier, the data speaks for itself. So the best Serie B goalkeepers for 2021-22. We've named the top 10 on the Substack article, but Leandro Cicizzola of Perugia has just edged out Alberto Pagliari, Michele Di Gregorio and Nicolas Andrade. Marco Canasecchi, well, he's coming at fifth and we understand why the fans voted for Karnasecki. Brilliant season, some fantastic saves, but we're going for consistency and we're using the statistics supplied to us by those that collect them. Leandro Cicizzola is the Lega Football Serie B goalkeeper for 2021-22. Serie B has immense quality across the league, though. Plenty of goalkeepers that could do a job here. And moving forward, we will examine the best defenders, midfielders, attackers, and coaches of Serie B in upcoming episodes and articles. So stick with us for that on Lega Football. 
And up next, we have an extended talk with Anthony Barbagallo of Sicilian football. Last time we spoke, it was about Palermo and their rise back into the Italian second division. And this time we'll focus on the entire island of Sicily, all their challenges and potentially where some of these clubs are headed. And since we first spoke with Anthony, Catania has had a takeover. It is the Peligra group. They're coming from Australia with Catanese background with some roots. So we'll see what the Australians can do there. And on that note, let's welcome Anthony Barbagallo, another Italian-Australian, to the episode. It was only 16 years ago that Sicilian football was at its peak. In your opinion, the days of Palermo, Messina and Catania all in Serie A at the same time. Can you see that coming at, at any stage? Well, for Palermo, I mean... They're the only club at the moment that I can see pushing for Serie A. It all depends also what happens in the off-season here if the takeover deal happens with the Football City Group. And if that happens, then I think Palermo, the road to Serie A will immediately accelerate and propel them back to the top flight in no time. As far as Messina goes, they're on the brink of uh, another bankruptcy. And for Catania, well, they're bankrupt. I haven't even had um, official news yet whether they're going to restart in Serie D. Yeah, they failed to find a, a buyer or someone to, to rescue Catania. It's... Yeah, it is. It is so much history. And that's one thing they always had against the Palermidani, that Catania never had been bankrupt. It's going to be a very difficult path for the Rossazzurri. They are looking at... Jari in Serie D. I hope they don't overtake that and say, well, we'll create a Phoenix club off that because it would be such a shame for Jari and the project that they've got going on. And Jari is in Serie D at the moment. I, th- I think they finished down towards the bottom of the table around 14th or so or 15th in uh, Serie D Girone E. Sicily finally has a team in one of the top two divisions. What does that mean for fans from the region, especially around the world? It's it's really good for the Palermita at least like because let's be frank I mean Serie B the Serie C Serie C there's so many teams I think it's overloaded I think it should only be just one group in the league to tell you the truth for Palermo um, and the Palermidani it's it's huge to be in Serie B you're going to be playing against teams like Parma uh, Venezia Genoa Cagliari uh, it's even good for my Sicilian football because you know it's going to get me it, it's it's a it's a higher platform, which is more... It's a huge boost for, for at Sicilian Calcio on Twitter for everyone listening. In 2006-07 season in Serie A, Sicily had three teams, Palermo, Gadania, Messina. Palermo is in the right uh, direction. Let's hope others follow suit. You follow Sicilian clubs closer than most. After Trapani's demise... Is there another club from Sicily that looks as though they could push for promotion, even from a City D perspective? Catania stopped playing. Trapani are back. Trapani, they got promoted in 2019 from Serie C to Serie B. And that was under Vincenzo Italiano? Yes, under Vincenzo Italiano. They beat Catania in the semis and then they took on Piacenza in the final and they beat them. Yeah, it was really good for Trapani and from there on they just went downhill, which was a shame. Such a shame for Trapani. Vincenzo Italiano moved on. They brought in Fabrizio Castori. Trapani is the, the eighth largest Sicilian city, 88th in his, in Italy with 70,000 people. You know, that was the last club we've seen in Serie B back in that 2019-20 season under Castori. And 
they had Mamadou Koulibaly, Stefan Stromberg, Alessandro Bongiorno in Valenzuela, Jonathan Biabiani, the, the ex-Parma and Interman, Marco Canesecchi, who's the goalkeeper currently at uh, Cremonese, and Andrea Colpani of Monza. We're going to see them in Serie A more than likely next season. Yes. So Trapani was the number one Sicilian club. Yeah. Palermo is back. Now, Trapani, as I said, is the eighth largest Sicilian city and 88th in Italy. Catania is 10th in Italy with just under 300,000 people. Messina is 14th with uh, 243,000 people. Obviously, Palermo is the fifth largest with just around 700,000. Those largest cities were struggling at a time when the 88th largest city in Italy Tarapani was the only Sicilian representation. Throughout the last few years, you've been following these clubs more than anyone else. Tell us about your passion for promoting Sicilian football clubs. Are there one or two in particular that you support? Obviously, with the family coming from the province of Catania, obviously, I, I go for Catania as well, Calcio um, Catania. At the moment, it's a bit of a hiatus with the club, so we'll see what happens. If there's a new Phoenix club, and I've been doing some concepts of logo designs, hopefully some jersey designs, and just try and get it out there on Instagram and that and share it with the people in Catania and see what happens but yeah you never know who's going to see it yeah I just hope uh, they at least can field a team and have a club this season if it's not going to be in Serie D if it's going to be in Echilenza then so be it they've played from Echilenza before Catania at one point Atletico Catania which is another club also came into a like a little rise and they were in Serie C for a moment. That club now is basically gone to, I think, the sixth or seventh division as well. So in terms of uh, my passion for Sicilian football, I thought that Sicilian teams uh, was very undercovered among Italian football media, you know, the English-Italian football media perspective as well. So There's a huge void to be filled there and that's what we're trying to do. That's what you're trying to yeah. do, especially for Sicilian football. And we need as many people to support as many podcasters and people that are promoting football of any kind of Italian origin on platforms such as Twitter and Instagram. It's a testament to what your intentions are as well. You're not just promoting your favourite teams, you're promoting a whole region. Sicilian football goes right from which Palermo will be in Serie B now. It goes right down to the um, Eccellenza Promozione, Prima Categoria, Prima Categoria 2 sometimes. Just promote it every province as well because, you know, Ragusa are another one that got promoted from Eccellenza to Serie D and they could probably try and get Serie C. Yeah, well, they're, they're from the southern part of Sicily along with teams like Licata, who finished ninth in Serie D uh, Girone I this season. Chita di Sant'Agata from the north coast of Sicily. They finished fifth, the most successful Sicilian side behind Acidiale. They've signed Francesco Lodi. They got this really good striker, Giuseppe Savonarola. They've been really trying to push for that Serie C promotion, but this season, Gelbison, which was in their group. Gelbison, they're, they're from Campania. Campania, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so they, they beat them to it. They had a fantastic season. And also, uh, I think Acidiale were knocked out by Cavese 2-0 in the playoffs, and yeah. that's where they came undone. But finishing fourth in that 
uh, Girone of Serie D was a fairly good performance. I don't know for those listeners how far back you go. I think Chiriale has played in Serie B once or yes. twice before. Uh, Cita di Sant'Antica never, but finished fifth. Paterno in seventh, which is uh, a town just outside of Catania. Also, Bianca Villa might be the closest team to, to Catania in 19th. FC Messina at the bottom after their bankruptcy. So Chiriale was the best-placed Sicilian side in Serie D. They ended up getting knocked out by Cavese 2-0 in the playoffs. The Serie D playoff final ended up, it will be Recatanese for Marche and Giuliano in the Serie D playoff final. Giuliano is a club from Campania. They beat San Giuliano City from southeast Milan, from the outskirts there, 2-1 away, Recatanese. They defeated Novara, former Serie A side from 2011 and 12. They're from Piemonte. So we're going to see Recatanese and Giuliano in the Serie D playoff final, where all Sicilian clubs are aspiring to be to get back into the third division. It was only 16 years ago that Sicilian football was at its peak in the 2005-06 season, Palermo finished in fifth, the best result in the club's history. They just fell short of Champions League qualification by a two-point margin. Through Palermo, Messina and Catania, the island boasted three teams in the Italian top flight during the 2006-07 season for the first time. We fast forward 15 years or so. Messina has finished 14th in their Serie Cheer group of Gironeci or Group C. They have players at the moment such as Federico Piovacari, 37-year-old former Serie B top scorer with Cittadella, former Santman who even won a Romanian title and played Champions League with Star Bucharest. He also had a spell in Australia with Western Sydney Wanderers and he's there now along with Andrea Adorante online from Parma. Eight goals for Adorante, the leading scorer for Messina. Two for Piovacari as a backup striker. Didn't play too many games, uh, around about a dozen for the season. And there's some promising signs with Romanian midfielder Marginian and Max Celic and Thiago Concalves at the back. You've been following Messina this season, Anthony. What are your thoughts? They had such a bad start at the season and they were just dead last at one point. It looked like they were really going nowhere. And they went through several coaches. Late on in the season, they went on this fantastic run. They survived relegation. Like you mentioned, Adorante, Concalves, they really stepped up towards the back end. And Iborama Balde, the brother of Keita Balde, yeah, he, he had a good season. He got three goals, but he was also a good contributing f- uh, factor. There was another player, Gabriele Morelli, at the backs. He, he had a good season with them as well. Before the season started, they were really aiming to at least get in the playoffs because up until position 10, you still qualify for the playoffs. Yeah, they just couldn't manage it. They they were bang on average. And therefore finishing further down the table in 14th. However, they were just promoted from Serie D, I believe. Yes, they they won the previous season in Serie D Group I. They just beat FC Messina to it. But HR Messina was really great that they stepped up. You know, they came back to Serie C. Now with all the ownership issues and that, it looks, you know, highly unlikely they're going to be in Serie C. Um, and who knows if they're going to be able to go to Serie D if they go bankrupt. 
it's it's just a shame to see so many of these clubs they, they get promoted and then they just fall right into bankruptcy. Seems to be a vicious cycle and a common denominator for a lot of these Sicilian clubs that perhaps are trying but then just falling short. Just for listeners out there who don't know, Serie D is an amateur league to step up from Serie D to Serie C, Lega Pro. It's called Lega Pro because it's the league where the clubs turn professional. The investment has to come in. Sponsors have to come in and it needs to drive them. Clubs get in debt fairly easily, just trying to keep their head above water. For a lot of these clubs, they're finding it very difficult to survive. Remember Sigula Leoncio? They were um, a, a team from Lentini. It's part of Siragusa, but right on the border with Cadania. And they were punching above their weight, honestly. A very small club. They, they made it all the way, I think, from the seventh or sixth tier right to Serie C. And now we're in there for a, you know, a good spell. They even made it to the Serie C playoffs at one time. So, you know, it, it shows that you can do it. Yeah, well, Palermo are definitely going to try and do it and get back into the top flight. That's Anthony Barbagallo at Sicilian Football on Twitter. Thanks for joining us so far. Next, we'll talk more Serie A action with Emmett Gates of Forbes Sports and The Guardian UK. Emmett's one of my trusty go-to guys when it comes to Serie A. Hello, David. Always nice to be back on with your fine self talking calcio. Pleasure is mine. Piacere. Grazie, Emmett. Uh, Lega Serie A has released a fixture list for the much-anticipated 2022-23 campaign, which begins on August 14th. Let's run through the first three match days. There's Verona and Napoli. Uh, Napoli then play Monza, but then a daunting fixture at the Franchi against Fiorentina. I don't know what you think. Perhaps Verona also has a tough start to the season. Verona and Napoli at the Bentagotti. Shades of Diego Maradona's first game for Napoli, if I remember right in 84-85 Maradona for the first time I remember him talking about how he, he saw how racist the Italians were with you know wash yourselves and all that sort of the banners from the, the Verona Ultras. Absolutely agree with you there. The Verona-Napoli is a, is a tasty fixture. It's, a, it's always a bogey game for Napoli. They did win there at the end of last season, but they haven't had much luck there against Verona and the season before under Gattuso. They didn't qualify for the Champions League and Juventus did. What do you think of Juventus's start to the season? Sassuolo at home. I think it depends on who Sassuolo lose over the course of the summer. You know, we keep seeing Gianluca Scamacca linked with Milan or Paris Saint-Germain. Or and now Fratesi with Roma and Raspadori might go to Inter. Traore might go to Milan. It really much depends on what kind of ships Sassuolo are in come the you know the middle of August. They're never easy, and Sassuolo beat Juventus last season. Yeah, you as we're literally about to say that. You know, Sassuolo beat Juve at home last season. So yeah, you can never take Sassuolo for granted. But I think much will depend on a what way Juve are in, what kind of shape Juve are in. You know, if, obviously if Pogba joins, Di Maria joins, maybe if Zaniolo joins, and then also. House of Swallow, you know, it depends on how many stars they lose. So, yeah, but as it stands now, that is definitely a very tough game for, for Juve. And then in week two, it's Sampdoria away for Juventus. You never know what you're going to get with Sampdoria. We're expecting Quagliarella to play on and Caputo to stay as well. But then in round three, it is another tough game. Juventus is at home, but Roma is coming to town. Mr. Mourinho. It's hard to make predictions at this point, obviously, because you know, we're in the early, earliest stages of the transfer window. But 
Yeah, I mean, that'll definitely be a tough game, no matter what. You know, and even if Juve do manage to buy Nicolo Zaniolo from Roma, you'd imagine Mourinho will demand sufficient replacements. And you'd imagine Roma will be better in the second season under Mourinho than they were in the first. I mean, we even saw in the last six months of the season how much they'd improved. Well, they won the big trophy. Yeah, they won the big one. The first time an Italian club has won in Europe for 12 years since Mourinho last uh, managed the team in Italy. So, yeah, you'd imagine Roma will be a lot better in the second season. And obviously, if they buy several players, they've already signed Nemanja Matic. Those three fixtures for Juve are arguably the hardest of any side in the division. It's going to shape their season, I think. And we'll go further down the table. Sampdoria have Atalanta in the first match day. The second match day... They have Juventus, so those two sides will clash. It's going to be tough for the Blue Cercati. A little bit easier, but you never know what you're going to get at Salernitana with uh, Davide Nicola as Sampdoria traveled down south. Milan and Inter, the Scudetto favorites, will be in action as well. It's Milan Udinese, then they're away at Atalanta, and then back at home against Bologna. You would expect them to get at least two wins and a draw there, perhaps nine points with Inter. They're away at Lecce on match day one. They host Spezia on match day two. Probably couldn't get much easier for the Nerazzurri. Well, that will be a nice warm-up for them, you would think, in the lead-up to match day three. They're away at the Olimpico against Lazio. But we'll move on. The calendar is basically created in a specific way. No matches between Milan, Inter, Napoli, Juventus, Lazio and Roma and Fiorentina can be scheduled in the midweek rounds. No derbies are scheduled in the midweek rounds. And that's because all those teams are going to be playing in Europe. So... With the big fixtures in August, it's going to be a hot one. It'll be hot in September as well. We won't be expecting any midday or 3 p.m. kickoffs until you would think late September at the very earliest in this season. The derbies will be coming up. The the first one of the season is the Tuscan derby between Empoli and Fiorentina. A tasty one on match day five, Emmett. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, the derby della Madonnina, it's always a cracker. Um, I went to this fixture last season. Um, and even though it was only a reduced capacity because of COVID was still ongoing at that time, it was, it was around 60,000 maybe in San Siro. The atmosphere was electric. Obviously, as we record this, you know, Romelu Lukaku has just landed in Milan to undergo his medical and obviously he's on his way back. Milan really haven't bought anyone yet and then they've lost Kese and they were trying to sign Sven Botman for six months and basically he couldn't wait any longer and sign for Newcastle. They didn't want to cough up the money for Botman and now they've missed out on him but they have a great defence. Kalulu stepped up to the, the task and you know we're going to see Romagnoli leave but I don't think that's a big loss to be honest. Yeah, I just think that they maybe need, if Kalulu gets injured or Tamori gets injured, you just kind of think, who's underneath well they got Kaya coming back but we don't know how good he's going to be and if you know he's getting on in his early to mid 30s but uh, Gabbia seems to be on the way out he's linked with Sampdoria some of the other Lombardia derbies Monza Atalanta there's also Milan Monza coming this season so some really tasty fixtures that's the the Berlusconi derby yeah it is isn't Milan it Milan Monza I wonder if they'll name it that Emmett what, what do you think the chances are of, of Serie A wanting the Silvio Berlusconi Milan Monza. Then there's uh, Cremonese Milan as well this season, and obviously Inter Cremonese, Monza Cremonese. They're both in the same region of Lombardia. Salernitana Napoli, they won't play until match day 19. But we'll move on from there. We're going to talk about the Serie A announcing that uh, they're issuing a playoff 
a Serie A playoff, Emmett. And we haven't seen this since the 60s where a team has actually won Serie A because they finished level on points. That was Bologna back in 1964 when they beat Inter. The Federation president, uh, Gabriele Gravina, had been pushing for the change for some time and it was made formal this week. So if two teams finish level on points at the top of the table, then they will go into a playoff to decide who takes the Serie A title. So if they're level after 90 minutes, it goes straight to a penalty shootout. This is only going to apply to the Serie A title. So if teams are on the same points in the battle for a European place, that will still be decided by head-to-head record. This is the system that was used until a few years ago when the head-to-head record became the deciding factor. What do you think, uh, Emmett? We could see something like uh, Derby d'Italia deciding this if Inter and Juventus finish level or it'd just say Salernitana and Spezia finish level at the top of the table. <laughs> what are you laughing I about? Mean, I mean, <laughs> I, I do love the idea. Like, obviously, growing up in the 90s, I used to love when teams would have to play a playoff I remember Inter and Bologna playing in the playoff for the final UEFA Cup place at the end of the 98-99 season. And obviously I remember relegation playouts, as they're known as, um, obviously when two teams are level. So I do think the playoffs, the playoff format is a welcome return. Um, I don't, I, I like a one-off game to decide something rather than maybe a head-to-head or a team racking up a better goal difference by you know beating some bottom of the league team six or seven nil and just racking up the goal count i definitely do think it's a welcome return back and to be honest or since the the playoff format you know for the scudetto was abolished you know obviously we haven't seen this since 1964 when was the last time two teams were level on points at the top of syria for the for the scudetto i mean has it ever happened since Uh, i can't remember i I think there was a couple of seasons ago when uh, Inter sort of shot back and uh, fell one point shy of Juventus when uh, Juventus won their ninth consecutive Scudetto. But besides that, I cannot remember a season. Yeah, I mean, I mean, yeah, I mean, I mean, the chances of you know the two teams at the top of the table ending on the same level of points is remarkably slim. I would say it will probably happen now because they brought it in. But I think Serie A looked at the success of Serie B last season and they realised just how tantalising a Serie B playoff final can be. We saw it in Serie C as well. That's how teams get promoted from the lower divisions with Palermo beating Padova, Monza beating Pisa. I think this, the success that Serie B had has paved the way. There's a chorus of voices now. The demand is there. People love a playoff, and we've seen Serie. Get broadcast last season for the first time in a while to English speaking audiences, and now Serie A is kind of copying and pasting this. I think Serie A needs to do what it can to keep the league exciting. In saying that, last season was probably the most exciting the league has been for years because there was going into the final day, there was a lot of things still to play for. But I think, yeah, you know, that was the last season was the first in a long time where the league was exciting going into the last day. And two teams both from the same city, which was enthralling. So Yeah, which added more space. So I think you were right. Serie A has obviously looked at Serie B and thought, yep, we need to follow this model. Because, yeah, I mean, we kind of saw that also with the Champions League in the year that COVID happened. It was basically, there was no semi-final, two legs. It was all shipped over to Lisbon and it was a one-off game. And people loved it. You know, you the... The two semi-finals were just one match. There was no, you know, return in a way. 
legs and people loved it and the audiences loved it and there, I think there's talks now of maybe one day the Champions League returning to that kind of format where it's like winner takes all one match 90 minutes or extra time or whatever but it's done and said in one evening as opposed to you know a week apart you know a home and away so I think that, that that could be the future I think of for Italian football also sure maybe introducing a playoff style even if even if they're not level on points top six teams go into like a mini tournament to see who is you know, the Scudetto winner or whatever. or who, You know, I always kind of liked it too, the, the German format for relegated sides. So the last, so the third place team at the bottom of the Serie A table would face, you know, the third best team in Serie B. And that's how it was once upon a time going back a couple of decades. And for those that don't know how Serie B and Serie C works, the lower divisions, they have a play out. And that is exactly what Emmett is describing here. It's the fourth and fifth last in Serie B. They play out. And the loser, obviously, in that home and away leg, they go down to Serie C Lega Pro, the third division. Obviously, to come up, it's the top two from Serie B. They get automatic promotion. And then the playoff finals series starts with third to eighth places. And for those that don't know and they want to read on about how Serie B works, the Serie B Guide to Promotion is available on the Lega Football Substack page. And we will link that in to this podcast We've spoken a little bit about the future of Serie A. Let's talk about the past. Insigne and Chiellini, they're off to the MLS. Lorenzo Insigne, he has landed in Toronto. A big coup for the MLS from Roberto Donadoni back in the mid-90s to names like Zenga, Cudicini, Donadel, Corradi, Nocerino, Pisano, Ferrari. And following in the footsteps of Sebastian Giovinco to Toronto FC is Lorenzo Insigne. Emmett, can il magnifico beat or equal Giovinco's record of 83 goals in 142 games. Phenomenal record, that. Yeah, I mean, they're kind of different players. Giovinco was kind of, you know, a tracortista or a number 10, whereas Insigne is more yeah. like a left winger. And he can play in in that tracortista tre role as well. Giovinco, back in his Juventus days, I think was used more as a seconda punta, like a second striker or on the left. I did remember him causing havoc, especially against the likes of Napoli. He went to Parma and at Parma, he did play as a, you know, a number 10. And saying that too, Giovinco went to the MLS pretty much in the peak of his, or the prime of his career. Whereas Insigne, I think we saw last season that he's kind of on a on a downward trajectory now. Well, he might be on an upward one, thanks to you know his transfer to Toronto. We'll see what the competition's like. Yeah, very true. But I, I I'd be very surprised if he matched Giovinco's record. I mean, he may come close, but I mean, I don't know what the rest superb of the, record eighty three goals in one hundred forty two yeah, I mean, games. I don't know what the rest of the quality around Insigne is like at Toronto. I know nothing about them. But well, they're, they're 11th in the Eastern Conference at the moment, and we will pick up on that point. Toronto's College Street, he was surrounded there by a few hundred adoring fans to get their first glimpse at Toronto FC's newest big-ticket acquisition. Insigne likes the look of the city. He's expecting a high quality of life, and I guess that comes with a pay packet, Emmett. Yeah, yeah, I mean, 15, what is it, 15 million US dollars per season? I is mean, that all? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's. I don't know how he'll be able to live. You know, cost of living in Toronto and whatever. You know, he might find it a do bit. Do you think tough. you and I could get a run at Toronto FC? I'll do it for half. Yeah, I mean, I would take a quarter. Even you know, I think we could we could we could offer our services and see what the <laughs> yeah, third and fourth string keepers. 
<laughs> I'd be the water boy if it was getting half of what Insigne is getting. Like a good Italian son leaving his city for uh, one of the first times in his life. He said he's nervous. It was tough leaving uh, Napoli, but he said, unfortunately, that's life. He said he's made a lifestyle choice for his children. He hopes that they can grow together as a family there. He was asked if his move was influenced by, you know, whether it was more financial or whether it was due to the challenge. He said he met with a president and he impressed him. And what do you think of that? Do you think that that's nonsense and he's there for the 15 million pay packet? I would say it's probably a combination of the pay packet and the lifestyle choice. We've both been to Naples. It's a very... It's a city, but it's a claustrophobic city. So you could imagine being A, Neapolitan, and B, for Napoli. Yeah, well, he's like Michael Jackson trying to go to the supermarket. Yeah, it's it's a very claustrophobic world. And obviously even, like, we mentioned uh, Diego earlier. You know, that was something that he was always very critical of. And, and Napoli players have kind of been critical of that over the years. I remember Marek Hamsik and Anderson Cavani talking about it and uh, Ezekiel Lavezzi. The, the love is too much. Like, you can't go out of your house. There's an obsession. It's an yeah, absolute obsession. It's an obsession, and the love is just, it's all-consuming and it's suffocating. So you imagine that's multiplied then for Insignia being a local yeah, boy. Yeah, with the success. Yeah, with the success. And- of Diego, and then people just got used to that, and that's flowed on throughout the generations of people in, in Naples. And- for the first time in probably a long time, but he'll be able to go out of his house. Be much easier. Yeah, not many people will recognise him. Kids won't get harassed at school probably as well. So yeah, big experience for someone that's lived their whole life in Italy and leaving it at the age of 31. He played 10 years at Napoli. He played for Italy. He won the Euros. He's accustomed to the pressure, he said. He wants to talk on the pitch as everyone can talk off it, but you have to prove yourself on the field, Insigne said. With Insigne's arrival, Toronto should expect an uptick in season ticket holders. So that's a big plus, apparently, Back when Javinko left Toronto in 2019, the club went to the MLS Cup, but still lost season ticket holders. So that's quite important for clubs, especially struggling ones. Toronto down in the bottom half of the table in the Eastern Conference. So 10 goals in 54 caps for Italy and was part of the squad that won the Euro 2020 last summer. 30 goals over the past two campaigns for Napoli, 11 last season and only a couple of those goals were in general play yeah it will be interesting as you said Emmett what he can contribute to this side and what he's got around him because you know you're only as good as what you've got around you in in a lot of circumstances and we've seen players go to these MLS clubs and you know Andrea Pidolo he did get a goal in his time in New York but nine assists as well but he didn't really get to make the impact that you would have expected him to. He just didn't have the ammunition around him. Yeah, so we will see the impact that he brings. The incoming addition of Italian defender Domenico Criscito, a close friend of Insigne's, that could help in that regard, Emmett. We could see Insigne's influence over the next couple of years and we could see maybe perhaps more Italian players, you know, switching from Serie A to the MLS yeah, well, we've seen, seen Italians in the past that have switched, the successful ones. Marco Di Vaio, 40 goals in 87 games for Montreal Impact back in 2012 and 2014. That's actually Joey Saputo's club, the owner of Bologna. Obviously, we saw Andrea Pirlo departed Juventus in 2015 for a paycheck of 8 million euros, Emmett. You know, it's big money going over there for some of these guys. Uh, one goal and nine assists in his time at New York City FC. We also saw even Alessandro Nesta 
after he left Milan in 2012. He was injury-prone at the time. He's, he also signed for Montreal, 34 matches. He played with Di Vale there, actually. In fact, 22 Italians have played in the MLS. Nine have played at Montreal. And more recently, we saw Giuseppe Rossi at Real Salt Lake with half a dozen appearances before jetting off to return to Italy to play with Spal in Serie B last season. And there also is, and this could be a little bit of a uh, challenge for Insigne here, a relatively unknown Bologna defender is on loan at Montreal. His name's Gabriele Corbo. He is from Napoli. And wouldn't it be great to see him up against Insigne, a potential battle of the Neapolitan yeah, Pizzani. It'd definitely be, um, you could definitely keep an eye out on him. And it'll be interesting to see if they, if they clash when the two teams face. Yeah, and well, they will face eventually. We'll have to look that one up for uh, MLS fans. Get out there and have a look. And I guess without Serie A, Serie B and Serie C, Italian cultural lovers can sort off over to watch a bit of MLS. Insigne is expected to make his debut on July 9th at home against the San Jose Earthquakes. Both Montreal and Toronto contest the Eastern Conference League of the MLS. So that's good in the context of that Gabriele Corbo versus Renzo Insigne potential battle. Montreal is currently in third position, Toronto in 11th, and both sides are coming off respective 2-1 wins over Charlotte and Atlanta United for those who are up to date or want to be up to date with some of the results over there. We leave the MLS topic with Giorgio Chiellini. He could debut for LAFC in the big one, Emmett, the El Trafico, it's called. That's the derby with LA Galaxy. Yeah, that'll be interesting um, to see to see how Giorgio gets on. I mean, I think he will get on fine. You'd think he'd get, he'd get on relatively well and he should have recovered from any niggling injury by early to mid-July. Gareth Bale has also signed on to play in front of Chiellini at LAFC. So huge things happening for LAFC and in the Western Conference of the MLS, in the Eastern Conference, they've got Lorenzo Insigne. So with a big Italian flavor, il sapore italiano continua negli Stati Uniti. It's going to be there for a little while, that Italian flavor in the MLS. Emmett, thanks for joining us on Lega Football. Pleasure, David, as always. And on that note, I'd like to give a big shout out to Joe Fischetti from the Forza Napoli podcast for his cameo appearance on Sky Sport with Lorenzo Insigne's landing and uh, introduction to Toronto. Congratulations, Joe. And to all those others involved in Lorenzo's unveiling, I'd like to thank our guests, Emma Gates and Anthony Barbagallo. You can find them online. Search for at Sicilian Football on Twitter. It's at Emmett Gates, E-double-M-E-T-G-A-T-E-S. I'm David Farini, your host of Lega Football at David Farini underscore. And don't forget to follow us at Lega Football on Twitter. We're on Substack. We're on all the platforms where you can hear great podcast content. Ci sentiamo. This is Lega Football.